than a feeling, which is all about what love is. And today we are talking about love and love as a verb, but I want to start by saying this. Love is not a verb. Okay? I, I don't care what you heard. Love is not a verb. Um, I'm not saying DT talk is bad theology. Um, and I'm also not approving of all the theology, but what we're going to explore is in Hosea chapter 6, and if you want to turn there, I would encourage you to. We're going to be going through basically the whole chapter of Hosea chapter 6, as well as many other scriptures. And we're talking about love as a verb and the fact that it is not all action. Love is not all about action. So this is what we're going to get into, but before we get into Hosea, i got to give a little bit of background into Hosea. Uh, Israel and the nation of Judah have separated, uh, but what's happening during this time is Israel, and I believe Judah as well, are going through a time of prosperity. Okay, great. Sounds great. Um, but Hosea, if any of you who know it, know that Hosea is all about rebuking the current situation that the Israelites are in, their current spiritual situation. So they're in a time of prosperity, but the problem is that they've wandered from God and they've started to fall into idol worship. They started to worship many idols, um, the idols of the Canaanites, a land that they had inherited, the land that they're living in in Israel. And Hosea is the prophet of God who is instructed to speak to this current spiritual situation, the current spiritual muck that they're stuck in that is idol worship um, for the most part. And, of course, he speaks many other things. Now, this is, again, one of the most powerful and strongest books in the Bible when it comes to this because of the illustration that is given. Hosea, and that's what I'm going to say. Other people call him different things, but Hosea is instructed to marry Gomer. Yeah, many of you know who Gomer is. Gomer is declared to be a daughter of whoredom. Okay, now that could mean different things. It could mean she herself was a prostitute. It could mean that she was the daughter or was a family of prostitutes. Either way, it's directly related to those things. And that is not the type of person Hosea, a prophet of God, would be expected to marry, would be expected to love. He would not be expected to uh, have a love for a person like that. But he is told by God to marry Gomer, and this is as an illustration, because God has married himself to his people. Okay, Inevitably, Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. And through it all, Hosea is commanded to love Gomer, to bring her back, to draw her back, to, to keep her back, um, and to maintain Gomer as his wife. And it's a powerful illustration of God's faithfulness to Israel, how God um, always loves, and how God is always calling us back, okay? But even more powerful, I think, is the illustration of Gomer being Israel, being us, that we are always wandering, always looking for something else, always prone to fall into loving another. With that being said, we're going to jump in here. Hosea chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. 
This is God speaking through Hosea. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophet. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. First point I want to make, actions without love are worthless to God. Actions that are not backed by love are worthless to God. Now there's a couple reasons to this, and we're going to get into those. But that is the main point, the first point in explaining how love is not a verb. Love is not all about action because action without love is worthless. Now, one reason this is true is because sacrifices don't do anything for God. In this situation specifically, he says, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, right? Knowledge of God, knowledge of me, rather than burnt offerings. Now, obviously, the Israelites were commanded to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, and we're going to get into why God doesn't really care uh, for those burnt offerings and those sacrifices. But the fact is that those sacrifices do nothing for God. What is the act of a sacrifice? In this time, it is the killing and burning of an animal or grains or a bird. Um, it's the sprinkling of blood. It's all these sacrifices and the ceremonial sacrifices that God had commanded the Israelites to offer. And think about what those things, what do those things actually do for God? Nothing. Okay, and a verse to prove that is Psalm chapter 50, verses 7 through 13, which I'll read real quickly here. Hear, O my people, I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God here is saying, it's not about these animals. I own them all anyway. If I was hungry and needed you and needed your sacrifice, then uh, I would have told you. But that's not the case. I don't need to tell you these things because I could do anything I wanted if I really needed these. God does not need our sacrifices. He never needed those Old Testament ones, and he doesn't need our sacrifices today. Now, we don't offer bulls and goats, thank God, um, literally, but we do offer tithes and offerings, right? And many other things we're called to offer a living sacrifice, so our lives every day, we offer these things to God. And the truth is, it's the same situation. God doesn't need it. Now, the church needs your tithes and offerings. And I don't want to, uh, you know, get anyone in trouble or get anybody uh, financially struggling here in the church. But God does not need our tithes and offerings, okay? Because what is God's goal, God's mission? To spread his kingdom, right? To grow his kingdom. His kingdom will go forth without our tithes and offerings, okay? Because his kingdom doesn't go forth by and through our tithes and offerings only. We don't hold that much power. 
If we held that much power, the world would be in trouble. But God has the power, and it is through God's spirit and the grace of him giving us his spirit and giving the world salvation that the world can be saved and can it come into his kingdom. Not through our sacrifices. This displays the transcendence of God. That God is so far above anything that we can do, anything that we think we can do. He's so far above all the animals and, and anything financially that we, we, we crave money, we need money, money gives us power on this earth. God's so far above that. He doesn't need those things. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as he says. He owns all the riches in the world. He's far above it all. But God is also personal. God is personal. And he does see each one of us. And he does care about each one of us. But that brings us to the second reason why Actions without love are worthless to God is because actions in themselves don't prove love. Okay? Humans have to look for actions, but also for words and also for other things that prove love to us. Okay? I see that that person cares about me. Why? Because they do things that show that they care about me. But the fact is that God knows our hearts. And if God knows our hearts, then why does he need actions to understand what is in our hearts? Does that make sense? Okay, if he knows our hearts, he doesn't need actions to prove our heart's condition to him. Now, a great example of this, or maybe I say a bad example, is Saul. In uh, the book of 1 Samuel, Saul is about to go into a major battle. He just won a battle, um, but he sees that the uh, opposing armies are rallying, that they're getting together some strong troops. And he goes, okay, 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 we've got, we've got a plan. We're going to have to attack these people. We need the favor of God because that's the only way we're going to win this because they're getting really strong. And so he goes, Samuel, we need you. You've got to come here. You've got to offer some sacrifices. Samuel at the time is the prophet of God. He's the one who is meant to offer those sacrifices. And so Saul says, come on, we've we got to get this done. And apparently Samuel said seven days. And on the seventh day, Saul's here, he's not around. And Saul gets, he gets greedy, he gets full of himself, and he goes, okay, okay, I'm going to go offer the sacrifices myself. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, is Samuel's response. When Samuel shows up, right after Saul offered the sacrifices, Samuel shows up, and here's what he says. What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, first of all, he's looking at way too many things. <laughs> I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, I didn't want to do it, Samuel, but I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. That was to have Samuel offer these sacrifices. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is 
strong word against Saul, and it is the, a condemning action for Saul. Saul did a couple of those, but this is one of them, where Saul totally neglects what God had commanded, the stronger commanded, commandment, the greater commandment was to wait for Samuel. It wasn't, it's got to be offered within seven days, or it has to be offered so that you can get hurry up and get, get attacking and get ready to, to face this army. It was wait for Samuel. He's the one who ought to offer this sacrifice as my appointed servant, not you, Saul. That's not your job. Saul had, a, Saul had an appointment too, but it wasn't for this. But Saul got worried. He looked at too many things, and he stopped looking at the commands that God had given. Now notice who Saul is going to be replaced with, who God says he is looking for. He says, I have sought after a man after what? My own heart. Not, he doesn't say, I, I'm, I'm sought after a man who offers better sacrifices than you, Saul. I've sought after a man who offers more sacrifices than you. A man who's richer than you, who has more power than you. He doesn't say, I've sought after a man who follows the law strictly and who does everything according to plan. He says, not that I have sought after a man who pleases everybody around him, which is what Saul was looking to do. He says, I've sought after a man after my own heart. Saul was not seeking the heart of God. And in fact, he wouldn't have had to have looked far. All he had to look at was what God had commanded. And obedience to God is more valuable than sacrifices. There's a verse in Malachi very similar to the Hosea one in, in Malachi chapter 6 that talks about that. It says obedience is better than sacrifice. Obedience over sacrifice. Let's go back to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 again. This is our main verse for today. It says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We've talked about the, the negatives, what God doesn't want. He doesn't need sacrifice. He doesn't need burnt offerings. He doesn't desire those. Those are not the desires of his heart. Now let's talk about what he does desire. He says steadfast love and the knowledge of God. So here's the point. Love and loyalty have always been God's desire. Loyalty is a word I really like. I think, I think we don't use it enough. Love and loyalty have always been God's desire. Even in these Old Testament times, when we see these other commands, the sacrifices and things of that nature, love and loyalty have always been God's desire. Now, what does that look like? Love and loyalty. Those combine to tell us that love towards God is exclusive. Okay? Love towards God has to be exclusive. Now let's look at the knowledge of God. Knowledge of God, what that phrase means is really, uh, many people say this, but not to know God, but to know God. Or to know, 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 know that you know God, right? Knowledge of God implies obedience. When, it, when scripture says over and over again, to know me, know God, to know no others, it implies obey me and don't obey any others. Don't even have them in your mind. Their opinions don't matter. Whatever they is, it could be gods, it can be peoples. Whatever that thing is, God says, know me. Look to me. 
for wisdom and for knowledge. The Israelites were commanded no gods, but they were also commanded don't know any others. Don't know any other gods. When they were instructed to go into the land of Canaan, they were instructed to drive everybody out. Drive everybody out of that land. Why? Because if they stay among you, you're going to know some other things. You're going to be exposed to some other things. And if you know those other things, you might end up knowing those other things. You may end up obeying those other things. So God had explained to them and commanded them to extinguish the Canaanites from among them, to drive them out of the land and to have nothing to do with those people who were not God's people. They were not to know any other gods. God cannot be counted among these other gods. Okay, what do we call the God? We often call him the Lord. Okay, scripture translated it that way many times. Many different translations use that all the time. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D. During this time, the Baals or Baals were worshipped, and that was many Baals, right? There, there is a Baal one, but there's also throughout most of the scripture, there's just many. There's a lot of little lords, and all that word means is lord. There were many lords among the Canaanites, but when we, when we call them lords, when we start to refer to them as our lord, the meaning of the lord is diminished. And now he's another one of those lords. And that's what happened to the Israelites. Deuteronomy chapter 32. I, I didn't even know about this passage specifically, but this is a powerful passage, a, a, a word of exhortation against Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 32, 15 through 18. But Jeshurun, or Jeshurun, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Now go back to that first verse. But Jeshurun, that word literally means the upright one. Israel, who was called to be the upright one, who was called to stand out from the other nations, who was called to be different from these other nations, the upright one grew fat. To me, that speaks of prosperity and being comfortable with what's around you. And from that fatness, they started to worship strange gods, gods they had never known before and should never have known should never have touched, should never got, have gotten into. We talk all the time in the church about the fact that we are free in Christ to, to do certain things, that we have freedom in Christ, but we don't have freedom to do anything we want. We have freedom to stay away from some of these things. So don't even approach these things that may become idols. Don't even approach these things that can turn us away from God. These people started to worship these gods it says demons and we know from scripture that that's truth that there are demons behind gods they started to worship these uh, demons and sacrifice to them and they were unmindful they no longer feared and had knowledge of and worshiped the rock 
not as their true God anymore. Now in Hosea, we see that they still sacrificed to God because of what God said to them. They still sacrificed to him. They still obeyed his commands. They still did what the law instructed. But they no longer had love for God because love for God is exclusive. Now, in Hosea, again, these, these Canaanite gods, the Baals, they were credited with the prosperity of the land. And scholars think that that's why Israel fell into it, because they were prospering, think good things were coming, and the Canaanites, who they allowed to live among them, said, yeah, that's, that's this god, that's this Baal, because that's why your grains are, are growing so strongly. That's why we have a great... Um, production in the wine area. That's why we have all these fruitcakes, as Hosea <laughs> goes on to explain it, because of this God and this God and this God. And the Israelites started to fall into the belief that these gods actually, if we offer to them as well, it's like it's a double bonus. We get both things. We get to keep the God that we brought from Israel or from Egypt who, who, who brought us here, and we also get to gain these new gods who apparently provide for us. But they forgot that God gave them birth as a people. It says they forgot the rock that gave them birth. The rock, the foundation that gave them birth. They would not be a nation without God. They would not be a people without God. What they forgot was who brought them there. Literally brought them there to the land of Canaan. And a lot of us, most of us in this room who are believers, who are, who are saved and are called, we are in the promised land. We are in Canaan, the promised land, inheriting what God has promised us, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, salvation, grace. We're going to inherit heaven. We're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We're going to be heirs of all that God has promised. But it's these people who can fall into the temptation of forgetting who brought us there. Because we weren't there before, and we can know that, but if we forget who brought us into this position, that is when we fall into the temptation of worshiping others. Now, the book of Hosea is all about these things as a whole. I'm going to talk about a couple things here. True love gives itself wholly and doesn't sleep with any other. Hosea is all about that because that's literally the, the illustration here of, of Gomer and Hosea. Gomer, if she truly loved Hosea, wouldn't have gone sleeping around with anyone else. True love stays faithful to one, to the one that is loved. Another way I'm putting this is true love's kiss ain't kissing any others. Does that make sense? Okay. Some people, some people in our society might not understand that. True love's kiss looks like a lot of different things nowadays. But... True love or a kiss backed by, right, an action backed by true love wouldn't be doing that with any other. Now, what's very sad is, again, the book of Hosea is not speaking to just a nation of Israel and, and just a, a, a people group. It's talking to the people of God, right, believers, people who believed in God and knew the story and what God had done and how God had brought them there. And in Hosea, multiple times, it speaks against the priests, the people of God, <laughs> the chosen 
anointed servants. Everyone is chosen and everyone is anointed, but those who were appointed as servants in God's house, those who were provided for by God through the tithes and offerings of the people, right, as, as it is today, those were the people who get the strongest rebuke in Hosea. And we see it as we go ahead here in Hosea chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, talking to the priest. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim, whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Now, in this passage, he's speaking to Ephraim and Judah, which are on the southern end. But we see there that they, they, they scheme as robbers in that they murder on the way to Shechem. Now, what the, the heck does that mean, right? What, what does that mean? Shechem, I'm, I'm just going to say it that way, Shechem was a refuge city. Refuge cities are one where priests live. That's where they were to reside, and that's the tribe of Levi, and that's where they were to, to be um, sanctioned. That's where they did their sacrifices and so forth. That's where they were provided for, again, by the, the what was brought in from the people, the tithes or taxes, whatever you want to put it as. And they were meant to be living there, uh, the, these priests, and that was their home. And the city acted as a house of God. Okay, I'm, I'll say it that way. Now, a refuge city, obviously that doesn't speak of refuge yet, but refuge was for those who had, specifically in Joshua, it describes it as those who committed murder but did it on accident, all right, did it without intent. They can run to a refuge city, and they'll present their case at the gate, and as long as the case says, hey, I didn't do this intentionally, then the priests, those who are in Shechem, are to let them in and protect this person until they face trial, a, a, a sanction, a safe trial, because we know that scripture says eye for eye, tooth for tooth in this Old Testament. That's the command that's given. And people, when, hey, my family member was murdered by this person, even though this person did it on accident, okay, no, it's, it's life for life. I'm going to get that life for this life. And this person who had committed this murder or killing was to run to a refuge city and wait and they would go on trial eventually it wasn't like they were they were out of out of it all uh, it's not like anybody who had committed actual murder could just run to a refuge city and be all good it was supposed to be a place of refuge until an appointed time of judgment does that make sense okay but what happened here is what was meant to be a place of refuge became hostile these people now it's a place of immediate judgment and of judgment without any grounds these priests who were meant to love those who came to the gate now schemed as robbers and committed murder on the way to Shechem what was meant to be a refuge city became hostile to them what's the equivalent today again I called Shechem, like a house of God. This, this church, this body, and, and not this building, but this body is the house of God. 
we are called to be a city of refuge. And it doesn't mean people get away with their sins here. That's not what this was about. It means that when people run here that we call them in, we give them protection, we surround them with love, and when judgment's going to come, it's going to come. And when, if they, if they were to adhere to our, 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 our rules, or let me just say, if they were to become Christian, then, then there's, that's when correction can start taking place in those things. But this is meant to be a house of refuge, and especially, especially for things that aren't sin. <laughs> when people come in here, even people who are already Christian, and they do things that just irk our souls, that is no grounds to be hostile towards them. When someone sits in your seat, that is no sin. We are supposed to welcome them into this city, into this place of refuge, and be happy they are here. Amen? The church must never let this happen to us. And, and I, I hope it doesn't happen here. I pray it doesn't happen here. But we've got to be careful because we can fall into the same thing as priests. And Pastor Justin and I can fall into the same thing, judging the pe- person who walks through the door. Oh, man, look at what they're wearing, or oh, my goodness, you're like, who is this person? Where did they come from? Who invited them to church? But this is a house of refuge. Now, we see the same thing in the New Testament with the Pharisees, which would be the equivalent of the priests. The Pharisees did the same thing. They judged people for the actions they took, even if they weren't sin. They judged them and said, you are less than me. You are less than because you are doing blank. Now, in Matthew chapter 12, it's the disciples are walking through the grain field, and they're picking some heads of grain on the Sabbath because they were hungry. And the Pharisees said, that's work. You're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath, and you're picking heads of grain and eating it. That's work. And they come to Jesus as a trap, and they come to Jesus and say, why are your disciples doing this? They're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to them in verse 7 was this. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. If you actually cared about fulfilling God's law, and what is God's law but to love, then you wouldn't have condemned these disciples who are hungry and picking some heads of grain on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath, right? Sacrifices were not, we were not made for sacrifices. Sacrifices were given for us. Sacrifices are for us. The greatest commandments have always been the greatest commandments. What are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture says time and time again that those are the greatest commandments. Jesus affirms those are the greatest commandments. There's a Pharisee who gets it right. Those are the greatest commandments. Not these sacrifices. Not the, the Sabbath. It's love, because all of those laws are based on love. That's what Jesus says after quoting those scriptures. He says, well, all the law and the prophets hang on these commands. The law and the prophets. We're reading one of the prophets, and we're talking about a lot of the law. It all hangs on love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. All this to show that it's not about the sacrifices 
but it's about the love and the commitment behind the sacrifice. Okay, that's why love is not a verb. Because if it was just a verb, it's, if it's just an action, then there's a lot of people who, who show a lot of love out there, or there's a lot of people who can't even approach love. And we can't even approach loving God in that case, because our actions don't line up all the time. Amen? But it's not about that. It's about the love and commitment behind the sacrifice here. Now, there's some questions we haven't answered yet, though. Why love God? Okay, all right, fair enough. I, I need to love God, not just with my actions. But why love God? Why return to him, right, as, as the call is in Hosea? Hey, return to the groom, right? Return to who you are married to. Why do it, though? Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers of spring rain that water the earth. Another point here, God's mercy draws us to him. That's why we come back to God. That's why we return to him, because of his mercy. We sang about it today. The song is literally titled Mercy. It's his goodness and mercy that gives us salvation. His mercy is what draws us to him. Now, mercy implies a couple things. Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is a second chance, right? Mercy is you messed up once. Here's another chance, right? And that's what Hosea is all about. It's you messed up. My people, you have messed up. My people, you've fallen to idol worship. But come back. Come back to the rock who gave you birth. Mercy implies an offense. So we're not getting away from that, okay? Same as the person who runs to the city of refuge, okay? They may, let's say they, they had committed a sin. It doesn't imply they didn't. But mercy chooses to overlook that offense, at least for a time. Mercy chooses to overlook that offense, and that's what God has done for us. Now, the scripture, scripture tells us that God tolerates. He's chosen to tolerate. Now, tolerate doesn't mean it's going to get away with everything. Right? Tolerate means for a time, I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to call you back time and time again until maybe you get it. Maybe you receive grace like I want to give you. But notice, this is awesome to me, in verse 2, and we, we can go back to that one, James, in the back. Uh, verse 2 says, after two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. What happened on the third day? Jesus rose. This is a clear reference to Jesus' work, Jesus' death and resurrection, which of which we are a part. We've been learning about in GTU over the past couple weeks that baptism equals participation. When we are baptized into Jesus, we participate in what Jesus has done. That's what we need. We need to participate in Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead. 
And if we want to rise from the dead, we've got to participate in Jesus. Jesus' death and his resurrection and our participation in them display the fullness of God's love towards us. That's why we return to God. That's why we love him. Because he provides us a way out. He provides us love. In other words, it's God who causes us to love him. It's God's love that causes us to love him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. I believe uh, this was probably like week number one we preached about. We love because he first loved us. That's why. It's not about us. It's not about something we can muster up. It's not about uh, it's good for us. It's not about, um, you know what, since, oh man, it's not about that, that we should have pity on God. There, there's none of that. It's because he loves us that he deserves love in return. Now let me say this. You might not feel the love of God. You may feel rejected. And according to Hosea, you may be rejected. Scripture says over and over again that God turns his back on Israel. And again, never never for good, and we're going to get into that, but he does reject those who sin against him. Those who disobey him, those who are not his people. So you may feel rejected. You may not feel that love of God right now. And again, you may be. But his mercy says, come back. His mercy says, come back. Here's an awesome scripture from Lamentations chapter 3, 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That's the kind of love we're called to show. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, God's not out to get you. Okay, and you want to know how I know that? If he were, you'd be got. <laughs> if God were out to get you, you would have been gotten. That's right. But he's not. He, he may even cause grief, as it says, for a time. There may be pain in the night. But what comes in the morning? That's right. God disciplines his children because he loves his children. No good parent doesn't discipline their children. So, as a result, let us go to God. Let's go to him. Let's return to God. I'm not saying everybody here is falling into some crazy idol worship. But we all have things that we struggle with. We all have things that we fall into. And even if we haven't fallen into them, we all have things we ought to stay away from. We need to return to God to knowing him only. And what happens when we go to him? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Awesome verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive what? Mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Another point here. Know God, know grace. Know God and you will know grace. What is grace? Grace is unearned or unmerited favor. That's right. Favor and blessing that we can't earn. Again, love is not an action. 
can't earn this by actions. That's why we need grace. Hosea chapter 6, verse 11. This is the final Hosea verse we're going over. It says, for you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When who restores them? I, God, not the Baals who supposedly provide for them. No, and, and what Hosea says is, I'm going to take all this away from you. You think that this is where you're getting your wine from. You think that this is why your grapes are growing so well. You think that this is where the wheat is coming from. You think that this is why you've had good rain and, and good seasons and why it's been awesome for you and why your land is fertile. You think that that's why. But I'm going to take it all away from you for a time, but only for a time. And then I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people. This is what we have a hope of, God's grace. We come to God to receive mercy. God, give me a second chance. And with mercy, God displays grace, favor, blessings that we can't earn. There's a future and there's a hope because of the grace of God. children and we are called heirs because of God's grace we don't talk about the heirs enough we're called heirs we're going to inherit the kingdom of God everything that comes with that everything Jesus is going to inherit we're called co-heirs with Christ Jesus is going to rule and reign and be seated in glory and be seated in the heavenlies and be and he is all these things he's already received them and if we participate in Jesus' death and resurrection, we too can be participants in his glory. If we participate in his suffering for a little while, we can also participate in his glory for eternity. We are called children, we are called heirs. And it has to be based on grace because, it, again, if it were works, we would all be falling way, way, way short. If it were by what we do, if we could show love for God by our actions and just by following all his commandments, we fall short of that every time. But it's not about that. It's about God's grace. It's about God's mercy. And that's why we come back to him. That's why we love him. That's why he deserves our obedience. If our actions were necessary, none of us would be worthy. Still, some final questions we haven't quite truly answered. So why sacrifice to God? Why do actions then? If God judges our hearts and he knows I love him, why then do the actions? And final point, we show love because we love. This is what I mean by love is not a verb. Because it has to be backed, those actions, the verb has to be backed by love in order to be love, to show love. But we show love because we love. Our actions are meant to come from the, the love that's already in us. That's why we say God changed me from the inside out. That's why we say God changed my heart. Because it's not about the things I do. It's about the heart. What God really sees. Man judges the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So if my heart is right, though, then those actions are going to come with it. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This is what the book of James is all about. The book of James talks about faith and works. And James says, but works 
proves or shows or makes justified the faith. He gives the example of Abraham who sacrificed, was ready to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And he says it was Abraham's faith that caused him to do this work of faith. Don't you think God already knew Abraham's heart? Right? We know God knows Abraham's heart. But God was testing him, not because God didn't know anything, but because Abraham needed to have an opportunity to show his faith. If, if this was going to be the heir of the, or not the, yeah, the heir of God's inheritance, if this was going to be the promise, uh, uh, the father who received the promises, then God needed to show that he had 100% faith in God. same thing with our love our love is proved or shown out in this world to those around us in this church to your families by the actions that we take we show our love for God by our actions yes but that love has to be there and if that love is not in us that's why we ask God for it we ask God to fill us with his love love that we cannot muster up on our own Love that we could never have. Love that was not with us in Egypt. Was not a part of our old lives. But a love that we know we need. And that God calls us to show. And that because of God's love and mercy upon us, we want to show. If you want to show that love, then go to God and ask him for it. Get rid of the idols. Get rid of the things that can cause distraction from God and worship and serve him only. Amen? Amen. Can we stand this morning? Let's pray together. God, you are great. We thank you for your mercy upon our souls, Lord, that we can have a second chance that you aren't done with us, that we haven't been cast to the side, not forever, but, Lord, that you have had mercy on us and you call us back time and time again. God, if we are in sin, show us. Call it out, Lord, and give us the courage and the faith to get rid of those things. Show us how powerful you are, God, and how we can trust in you. Discipline us, I pray, God. Teach us obedience. And true devotion and love for you. God, we thank you for your mercy and the second chance. But Lord, we thank you for your grace. The fact that we can receive the kingdom of God. That we can inherit your blessing and your riches and your glory is unfathomable. God, we, we love you. We declare it right now, Lord. And ask that you would just fill us with more. That you would fill us with your spirit, which is love. And that as we are filled, Lord, that we would come to love you more. And God, that our actions would reflect that. I pray, Lord, that each person here would go from this place showing, shining forth their love for you. Jesus, we thank you. You are worthy of all praise and all honor. We bless you, Lord. We praise you. Amen. Amen.
All right, everyone have a wonderful Sunday. We'll see you again in the future.